As you listen to this, I'm in Florida, where I just attended the memorial service for my wife's 103-year-old grandmother, Norma Shapiro. And along with being a fabulous mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother to my kids, Norma was my friend. She knew nothing about sports, but recommended my books to everyone. She'd call during episodes of Winning Time and say, I just watched your show. That Magic Johnson, he seems like a swell guy. Even when I told her that my next book was about Tupac Shakur, Norma asked some questions and said, I bet that'll be interesting. With Norma's passing, I don't feel like I've lost an elder so much as I have a friend. So in honor of Norma Shapiro, I'm sharing a message she left me a while back. For no other reason than just so you hear her voice and maybe even for a moment, think of her. Hi, Seth. It's Norma. I wanted to be the first one to wish you a happy birthday. I hope you have a wonderful day today and many more happy birthdays. And don't forget, I still love you no matter what. I still love you no matter what. Bye-bye. Thank you, Norma, for everything. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Allison Footer, the MLB.com executive editor who long ago started her career in the Astros communications department before becoming the team's MLB.com beat writer. This is episode number 299. Let's sing some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And nobody cares about your stupid TV show. All right, Allison, I just want to say um, my favorite thing I found about you leading up to this, favorite by far, 1997, January 22nd, 1997, transaction section of newspapers across the country, okay? Among other things in here, I just want to say, the Dodgers agreed to terms with Mike Piazza on a two-year contract. The Montreal Expos agreed to terms with the second baseman, Mike Lansing, and right-handed pitcher Dave Varis on one-year contracts and invited Lee Smith to training camp. The St. Louis Cardinals agreed to terms with shortstop Royce Clayton. And the Houston Astros agreed to terms with third baseman Sean Barry, catcher Tony Eusebio, outfielder James Mouton, and they named one Allison Footer, coordinator of publications, all <laughs> in the agate of 1997. How the hell did you make the agate, Allison? Uh, they put out a press release. I called my parents and I go, oh, a transaction. God, when you say January 22nd, 1997, I didn't remember the exact date, but I do remember um, flying to Houston to interview for that job and uh, calling my parents from the JW Marriott after it was over and saying, this was such a great experience and I'm so glad I got to do this. And clearly I'm not getting this job because I'm too young. And yeah, this is my first time interviewing with the major league team. And, uh, but it's really going to set me up for, you know, future uh, opportunities. And then I think six days later, Rob Matwick, who became my boss, called me and offered me the job. I was living in Northeast Ohio. I was working for the AA uh, Cleveland Guardians, Cleveland Indians back then um, in Canton, Ohio. And I just saw a whim, found a, saw a job that I wasn't qualified for at all. And I applied for it. And then they called me with a job that I was more in line with what I had been trained to do. When that came out, I remember looking at the newspaper and thinking that was the craziest thing I'd ever seen, that I was actually a transaction. It was very exciting. Also, I just think it's very funny to show how long you and I have been around, that you are yes. in the transactions with Lee Smith, an active Lee Smith. <laughs> I don't remember all those other things. That's that's funny because I probably just, you know, glossed right over all that other stuff and just saw my name. I was so intimidated. I remember uh, when I started with the Astros and a week later, everybody left for spring training. So I was basically in the office 
by myself with some marketing people. Um, and the day that the team returned from Florida, my Rob called me and said, come down and meet, meet us uh, as the buses are dropping the team off at the Astrodome. And I went down and I just watched everybody come off that bus. And it was like, it was so overwhelming to see everyone, Larry Durker, Jeff Bagwell, Craig Biggio, all the trainers, all, you know, all the broadcasters. I knew no one. And I remember thinking, I want to go home, like home to my parents in Ohio, not <laughs> to my apartment in Houston. Like, this is too much for me. I want to go home. Um, and it ended up being the next three years were the greatest of my life. So, wait, why do you say that? Because I learned uh, everything that I could possibly learn about the business of Major League Baseball. Um, I worked more than I have ever worked in my life in terms of hours. Um, it was exciting. I was young. I started traveling with the team my first season by coincidence. It just was such a an overwhelming but wonderful uh, way to kind of get into the business is working in media relations for any major league team because it's nonstop. And I was so young then, you know, now I lose two nights of sleep and I it takes me three weeks to recover. But back then, you know, you're just going on adrenaline and the Astros they were in their final three seasons in the Astrodome. And then we were moving into what was going to be Enron Field in 2000. And so closing down the dome in 99 was something I'll never forget. And they won the division every year that my first three years, which was hilarious because I knew nothing else besides winning. And of course, then getting bounced in the first round. But um, and then, you know, we moved into the new ballpark in 2000 and they their record was 72 and 90. And, um, you know, it was the band box. And it was just, I just didn't know what losing was like. But those those first three years, I were are by far um, the best years of my life. I just want to say it's really funny. I found an article uh, September 11, 1997, and it was Texas teams falling short a gate. There's quotes in here from Allison Footer. The quotes are so bad. Uh, Wait, I just want to read you what the quotes oh, are. Oh no! <laughs> you're like you're explaining why the teams aren't team isn't drawing well, and your quote is attendance is always bad at the Astrodome. But we're kind of baffled at be, baffled by it because we're in first place ever since the All Star break, and then you say. The Astros are known for not drawing well. Oh, great. Oh, that's nice. Okay. I'm glad I didn't get fired. Thank you. Thank you, Pam Gardner, for not firing me. But you know what? I mean, it was true. And and I think that, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I, I doubt that they would care that much because that's why they were moving out of the Astrodome into right. a new ballpark is because the, the, the attendance was bad. And plus there were 56,000 seats in that place, 52,000. I mean, it was such a ginormous uh facility yeah maybe they were like maybe that was our messaging like attendance is terrible which is why we're moving into a new ballpark you and i are about the same age and i remember growing up and watching um the bad news bears when they play in the astrodome and you know uh cesar Cedeno and joe morgan walk into the dugout bob watson and i remember being a kid in new york thinking the astrodome holy cow that must be the most magical place on earth was it as big a dump as one might remember it was by the time I got there for sure. Um, and I always say that I appreciate respect and have learned a lot about what a palace it was when it first opened, um, especially Tal Smith, who was the president of the Astros when I got there. I mean, he was one of the architects of the dome. I mean, he was a young executive working for the Astros when they built the Astrodome. And so I would hear stories from him about just how beautiful it was. And the, um, you know, the owner Roy Hoffines that he had like a bowling alley in there and he had like a whole floor, which was kind of a living area. Um, and it was just, 
it's such, it was such an interesting historical lesson for me because the suites were all up on the top floor. So there were, there were nine floors to the dome and on the ninth floor were all of the suites. So I'm like, these are the worst seats in the house. Like, no, no, no. Back then when the roof was the only roofed, they were the only roofed ballpark in the entire world. Nobody had seen a roof at a stadium before you wanted to be close to the roof. You really didn't care about being close to the field because that was the prestige was being near the roof. I'm like, wow, that's uh, times have changed. Now, by the time I got there, it was just um, it was just dirty. I mean, they had the rodeo there every year. They had motocross. They had, uh, you know, a million concerts. They had so many things that were making the place filthy. And it was cleaned up to the best that they could. But when they knew they were moving out of the dome, but they broke ground at Enron Field my first year, they really stopped taking care of it by then because there was no reason to put money into it. So it was, yes, it was, <laughs> it was a dump. It was a beautiful dump. You know, I grew up and since I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, so like Riverfront Stadium was my stadium. And like, yeah, that was a dump too, but it was my dump and I loved it. So, um, yeah, I don't want to upset Astros fans by saying it wasn't the greatest place, but it had run its course for sure. Was it a weird transition for you going from media relations to covering the team? So you covered the team for MLB.com from 01 to 09. You've been the media or media relations person. So you're going from a, from a, staff position to sort of covering the team with sort of a critical eye. I mean, I don't know what the MLB.com mojo would be at the time, but was that a weird adjustment and did it take some sort of getting used to? Yeah, it was a definite strange adjustment. Um, at the beginning, we definitely were not the um, kind of independent journalism site that we are now. Um, and coming from the team, I basically, the first year, I just felt like I was still working for the team. And we were just trying to get our footing. And I did not know what I was doing. And most of the people that took on the reporter job also did not know what they were doing. Um, it's funny to tell people now that work for us, like what we were back then. Um, because what were you back was, then? How would you describe what you were back then? I, I'll tell you, I was sitting in my office at uh, at the ballpark and Rob came in and said, we're starting uh, MLB.com. Every team is going to have its own website run by Major League Baseball. We need a site reporter and a site manager, I think that it was called. Do you want to be the site reporter? And I had just interviewed with the Florida Marlins to be their PR director. Uh, so I was kind of looking to move on somewhere. And I was like, yeah, I'll do that. Okay. I I had a, a little bit of a writing background. I mean, certainly I wrote program stories, you know, for our game programs. And I wrote press releases. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Tell me if I'm wrong here. You also wrote for the T-Bolt T-Bolt Tribune at Northmont High School. Okay, Jeff, where are you finding this? Like I'm you're finding things that I literally found underneath my bed in my spare bedroom of of things that like I wrote back then that are not online. Wow. I got my sources. Oh my goodness. Yes, I guess I wrote a couple of stories from that. Um so to say that I probably wasn't qualified to take on the Astros beat would be a severe understatement. Um, but you know what? I figured I figured it out. I made my way through. No, no, I don't want that's that's too thin. No way. Like here you are. <laughs> no, I'm being serious about this. Here you oh, are. I was terrible at it when I first started. Yeah. I was gonna ask. So you start. Yeah. You have no yeah. journalism experience whatsoever. And you have I had a little journalism okay, experience. Okay, a little, right. But so, yeah, right. You have these beat writers coming in from different newspapers and you're standing with them at the press conferences. So like right. Here's Allison Flutter with Busteroni and Tyler Kepner and a million like really great John Heyman and all these different guys. And there are all these experienced writers who've covered teams and you're in these press conferences and you're, I'm really mean this, like, and, and you're, you're in your twenties and you're a woman in a male dominated profession, the whole thing. Like 
do you feel like an imposter at the time? Do you feel like, no, I belong here at the time? What was that sort of like? Oh, goodness. Let me try to remember. Um, I did not feel like I belonged, but nobody felt like we belonged. So we weren't considered to be any kind of presence because uh, at that time, we were sort of looked at as just an, a PR arm of, of the teams. Um, not really that incorrect. Um, but I, I think that it was different for me. Let me say it was different for me because I had been a presence at these press conferences for four years because of my prior job. So I was the one that was helping the media. I was the one that was disseminating information that they needed to cover the Houston Astros. So me being there wasn't everyone wasn't like, you know, what is she doing here? It was more like, can I get an Astros media guide? <laughs> because they didn't even know that, you know, I had changed jobs and nobody knew what MLB.com was. The internet was just, I, there, you know, it's funny. There was a little bit of resentment because, because of the way that we started doing things, deadlines, newspaper deadlines sort of became a little obsolete. And so people that were used to like, oh, okay, the game went past 1030. All right. You know, I, I'm done. Um, now they had to continue working a little bit later in order to get their stories up on their newspapers websites. And a lot of them really didn't like that a whole lot. So the whole like bringing in the internet age was, um, it was an interesting time, but, uh, but no, I, I always, I was always so closely associated with the Astros that nobody really thought of anything with me being, you know, standing there with a tape recorder now, instead of just watching everybody else do their thing. So did you have to adjust and change your approach as the years passed to ask questions that maybe players wouldn't want to hear to write things that maybe were a little uncomfortable for people? Yeah, yeah. I became uh, the cynical, bitter sports writer within a couple of years. I do remember asking a extremely legitimate question of Larry Durker, who, by the way, is a dear friend, um, somebody who was like so special to me. He was the first manager I worked with. Mm. And when the Astros got bounced again in 2001 in the division series, I asked a question about why did you go to X bullpen guy instead of Mike Jackson? It was, and he just looked at me like, why are you asking that? And then answered it. But it was like still weird, you know, to see somebody that like they looked at as, you know, one of the team and all, and all of a sudden I'm asking on the other, on the other side of it, um, some pretty difficult questions. So, um, you know, it took us a long time to just sort of show that like we are uh, independent journalists and we are here uh, for a legitimate reason. And we do want to write the correct stories. Um, and, you know, I have to, give credit to Drake McLean, the Astros owner at the time, because there were some things that we put on the website and the Astros website that he was a little cringy for him. You know, Billy Wagner um, criticizing the team uh, for not trying to win. And um, but, you know, at the end of the day, he's like, if we're going to if it's going to be out there, I'd love for it to come to the Astros website. You know, this was a this was a business. And uh, if people were coming to the website of his team, then he saw that as a as a plus. And so but it, it by the time I would say that when I really felt like in 04, the Astros hosted the All-Star game. They, Roger Clemens and Andy Pettit signed with the team. They fired Jimmy Williams halfway through the season and hired Phil Garner. And I felt like I was kind of off and running that year. Um, lots and lots of things happened. And I felt like I really felt stable, had my footing, felt like one of everyone else, you know, in the room in terms of journalists um, that year. Writing for MLB.com, could you write the same critical things that a, you know, Houston Chronicle columnist or, you know, beat reporter would write about the team or were there certain limitations? Um, I think for the most part, we could, we could write alongside of what was going on. I mean, I, it was, were there, 
I, I, okay, like when Julio Lugo, when he had the domestic violence thing in 2002, we, we wrote a story that was extremely factual. You know, we just had to be very careful about not editorializing. We just had to put forth the facts. And the other thing that stands out to me was when Jeff Bagel was having a huge fight with the Astros and with Drayton McLean because his shoulder was shot. He had another year on his contract. They wanted him to declare himself totally disabled so that they could get insurance money instead of having to pay him hit the final year of his contract. And he felt like he could still play. And every story I wrote was just the Astros, Bagwell's uh, agent, Barry Axelrod, the insurance company lawyer, and somebody else. There were like four people. And I just kept quoting everyone. Um, and that's just kind of how we did it. So if it's, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of some of the the things that maybe like the newspaper covered that we just sort of stayed away from. Um, nothing comes to mind, but yeah, I mean, day to day, it's just, it's baseball and they're playing baseball games. And like, there's things that go on that you, you know, wonder about a managerial decision. I mean, these are just things that are asked after the game. And we had, we had a lot of freedom to to cover that alongside of everybody else. I mean, yeah. if you don't, then there's no legitimacy. Like the point is to have people come to your publication, to your website and read your stories. And if people think you're just giving them a load of bunk, <laughs> then they're not going to come. And then, you know, there's no value in that. So, um, so yeah, it definitely, uh, it, as the years went on and I got tougher, uh, you know, could see, th see things more critically. Uh, I enjoyed it. And, and, you know, I had a lot of back and forth with Phil Garner and I, I just, I have really good memories of, um, of just covering the team. And, you know, Jeff Bagwell said it great. He's like, is it true? Is it accurate? I mean, he just asked this in general, you know, if you're being critical of me, are you being accurate? Are you being fair? If it is, then that's fine. Like we're all going to wake up in the morning and we're all going to have our jobs. You know, you're here doing your job. I'm doing my job and um, just be fair and be accurate and don't make stuff up. That's kind of how we did it. I found a story about you from February 27, 2006, and it's uh, Clemens Homer's off dad in BP. And uh, the oh, lead God. thing to Simi, Roger Clemens won't say the word retirement, but we, he won't reveal what he's going to do after World Baseball Classic either. It's likely the Rocket has an idea of what he would like to do, but after throwing a simulated game at the Houston Astros minor leaguers on Monday, he emphasized that the only commitment he's made is to Team USA. But if you had to decide today, Clemens hinted he would lean toward not returning for a 23rd season. And I sort of wonder, I wrote a book about Roger Clemens. You actually, I remember working, I actually, this flashback today, you wouldn't even remember this, but I did write a book on Roger Clemens and you were incredibly like kind and helpful to me. Uh, yes, with nothing I, read, I read that, but that was a great book. Uh, um, Clemens, just seems like a pain in the ass and he seemed like a pain in the ass to cover, but tell me if I'm wrong. What was he like to cover? Roger himself was fine to cover. It's like PTSD. When you read that, uh, I could, I, I rolled my eyes for three straight years trying to deal with more his agents than him. I would, Roger is complicated because he, first of all, he was only there the day before he pitched and the day he pitched. So the whole time he pitched for the Astros, he was off until he had to pitch. Um, he was, I, I liked him on a lot of levels. Like personally, I am appalled and just disgusted by a lot of the um, shenanigans from as the years went on with all the Mitchell report mess, but having to deal with his agents, it was the will he won't he resign with the Astros. So he signed the Astros basically because he got 
jealous that Andy Pettit signed with the Astros. And so he had to do it too. Uh, comes out of retirement, this hailing hero. Fine. It was a great year. Oh, four. And then that off season, he just wouldn't tell the Astros if he wanted to come back again. He's like, you go ahead and build your team. And then I'll let you know. It's like, you're going to cost them like $20 million, buddy. So they kind of need to know, you know, and it was like this, the, that part of the process, but that day at spring training was like, um, I don't think Brian McTaggart, the Astros writer now, I don't think he would mind uh, me saying that we sat on those backfields fuming that we were covering this and not covering the actual Houston Astros who were in spring training, which was our job. And we had to sit at these backfields and watch this nonsense of him throwing BP to his son, making a spectacle. It's all about them put the attention on them. It's like, he just, he needed so much attention and the Hendricks brothers, his agents, they needed so much attention. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a woman in my thirties and I'm watching these grown men who are so desperate for people to pay attention to them, to, to affirm like their place in the world. And I think that's kind of where the crossover happened to me, where I became like, a little hardened in a way that I wasn't before that. But when I see it's weird because like, I don't have a lot of nice things to say about Roger because of what I watched happen through that Mitchell report, because of what I watched happen to his trainer and the dishonesty that went on through that whole thing. But when I see him, it's weird. I'm like happy to see the guy, you know, he's got another side of him that he's, you know, he, he, he wasn't like the smartest guy in the world, but he, he was nice and he was good to deal with as a pitcher. Um, he really did get it. And he understood what we had to do as in, in our jobs. Um, but, oh God, because I, I kept having to cover him. He's now, he's like almost. I don't, I think he was pushing 50 and he went, tried to pitch for the Sugarland Skeeters. And I'm sitting at that ballpark all of a sudden, I'm like, I am still covering Roger Clements. <laughs> when do I get to retire from covering Roger Clements? Um, so, you know, he, he is one of the most fascinating, complicated, um, and just kind of important people all in, all in one. That's how I, that's all I can describe it. Okay. Here's where I'm going to disagree with you, but tell me if I'm wrong. Okay. <laughs> I, that's my least favorite book I worked on overall was the Clemens book. And I always say, because, all right, like I wrote a Barry Bonds biography and I found Barry Bonds to be a much more despicable person than Roger Clemens. But I thought Bonds was kind of intellectually fascinating. And I think if you could take Clemens's brain and print out what it was thinking, it would basically be a string of baseball, breasts, eat, sleep, breasts, <laughs> baseball. Like I didn't find him that fascinating and I didn't find him that thoughtful. I think he really wanted the attention. I think he really liked playing baseball. Am I wrong? Like, I just think it was an endless loop of surface bullshit. No, yeah, I, I would agree with you. I don't think there's any wrong answer to Roger Clemens. I mean, that's what's so, uh, I just, I look at people as exactly who they are and I am not uh, swayed or enamored by the fact that they're a professional athlete. So when I, when I say that, like what happened to some of the people around him through all the scandalous stuff, like that upsets me to no end. What happened to his trainer, really what happened to his family, his children were very young. They were absolutely getting tortured at school. Like there's so many things that happen to people that alter their lives forever. And that upsets me. He is not fascinating. The, the world around him right. and what we stepped into to cover him as a hailing hero coming home to the absolute downfall where he's sitting in Washington, DC, you know, trying to defend himself against his former trainer and everything that happened in between 
And to see him now, you know, you see him in Houston. And I remember covering the Astros World Series Parade in 2017. And I'm, you know, sweating. I'm drenched in sweat. I'm trying to push my way through the crowd. I don't know where I was trying to go. I was just trying not to get trampled. And then I see him like jump out of some car and he's 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 ushered off to, you know, some booth where he's going to do radio and TV. And I was like, wow, you just he's just this is why they they are what they are is because there are no consequences or ramifications to anything that goes on. They're always going to be hailed as these, you know, great people. He was a great pitcher. And I think that he had a hard time getting past his playing career because he didn't identify as anything except pitcher. You know, he had a Twitter account and he was like 50 something years old and he starts a Twitter account and he writes Roger Clemens pitcher. <laughs> like that's who he is. And when it was over, it was hard. You know, it was really hard. So you know, and let me just say, his kids are really nice kids. McTaggart and I talked about this a lot back in the day. I said, I no matter what happens, Kobe Clemens was a, an Astros prospect. You know, he was never really a prospect, but he was in the Astros minor league system. I'm not going to bug this kid and, and bring him down or or blame any of this on him. Like these are nice kids. Uh, his wife is a nice person. Like they deserve to just like have their lives. And uh, I'm going to go as easy on Kobe Clemens as possible because we had to chase him down. We'd sit at the minor league complex when this whole Mitchell thing was going on, waiting for him to come out because Roger was inside and it was such a disaster, but his kids are very good kids. I always think it's a bad sign when an adult over the age of 30, whatever refers to himself by his nickname. Like I always think we have a problem here. Yes. Yes. And um, yeah, there was always funny when um, they would play rocket man, like he'd have a big strikeout and they'd play rocket man over the PA. And I was like, Oh, good Lord. Oh my goodness. Like nicknames are for other people. Like I don't call myself by my nicknames. I have a million nicknames. Like you call me by my nickname. That's right. Good. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Allison, can you start calling me the Pearl? Is that all right? Just call me the Pearl for the rest the of the Pearl. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, wait, I haven't talked about this often on this podcast. I think the corrupting influence of fame is remarkable. And I actually think Clemens is an interesting example. I think a lot of these guys, they get that taste. It's like that first snort of cocaine where they're like, you're recognized in a mall, then you're recognized in an airport, then you're recognized at the ballpark, then you're signing autographs, then you're making a lot of money. Have you seen that impact a lot of guys? Do you feel like throughout your career? I, honestly, no. I mean, I would say, and and this isn't like, you know, putting rose cluttered glasses on, but the majority of the players that I have covered, um, you know, some change over time, but for the most part, they're just good people who happen to just make a ton of money, but, and are athletically gifted in ways that we could never imagine, but raising families, you know, understanding the, the way the, the world works. Um, I consider a lot of them friends. I mean, I, I came out of my reporting years, like thinking that like, I have a lot of friend friendships that I made, um, you know, I mean, professionally so, but people that I see now that are in front offices or coaching, you know, people that I used to cover just great people that went on to live really good lives. I, I think that where there can be some differences is like the consequences for doing things improperly are just different for them than they are for us. Like there are very uh, real things that can happen to us if we don't show up to work on time, if we don't have, you know, go through with the commitment that we made, if, if we don't do our job well, there's more leeway for them. And so there is a difference in just how they see the world seeing them. You know, humility is a tough thing to come by when everyone is treating you like you just whatever you think is fine. Well, some of the things I think aren't that fine, you know, uh, but they, they have a little more leeway with that. And I think that's the biggest difference, but no, most of the people that I have covered, um, I, I can name like 
there's one person that I absolutely detested and that, that I, that I covered. And honestly, there's really not a close second. I found good in just about everyone. And when you can get to a point where you're like, you don't have to be like me, you come from different backgrounds, from different everything. Um, but you can find good in just about everybody. I'm going to ask you a loaded question. All right. I just don't believe Jeff Bagwell was a clean baseball player and it pisses me off. <laughs> I'm not getting into this. Oh. I am not getting into this. I have watched this. I have watched this back and forth and during the, you know, when, especially when he first got on the hall of fame ballot, Astros fans are not huge fans of yours, Jeff Perlman. That's okay. Comes with the territory. Oh, yeah. Um, that way would be all speculation, and uh, and I I don't I don't want to get into. it. Is it wrong that I'm skeptical about ball players from our era? Do you think? Being no, serious about this, should yeah, I yeah. give these guys? And I'm not just talking about Bagwell or those guys. I'm talking about in general. Like, do you feel like we should give ball players of that era the benefit of the doubt, or is it okay to be like, eh, I don't know about that? I think it's both. Um, I, I really do, and I no, I don't think that they've earned the right to just for us all to believe them on their on their first proclamation that they were clean. Um, the way I've explained it in the past is like I am very upset by the fact that the steroid era was my generation. The first, you know, early '90s when it seems to have started, and I was. 22 years old. And then the Mitchell report came out and I was 36, 37. So my era of baseball players, um, and, and I, it upsets me and it makes me extremely sad. So no, it's fine. It's, it's fine. I, where I, where I don't think it's fair is to just be like, there's absolutely no way that he wasn't doing steroids. There's without having more information than that. And, and that's where I, kind of was like the whole like Barry Bonds thing. There was very re real evidence. I should, mm -hmm. Let me just say that. But there were players that I talked to when steroid testing started in earnest. And, uh, you know, two Astros players in particular were just like so happy. You know, and these were star players and they were like, I'm going to win so many games. And and another player who just, he he just wanted it to, it was so taxing, you know, to try to keep up with these guys. Yeah. Um, so there are those, there are those players, you know, I, I know that's like not the answer you want, but I think you can be very, very skeptical, skeptical because they've earned that. And I think that you can also give some of the benefit of the doubt because there were guys that just did not want to do that stuff, but you know, it's dangerous and it's terrible and unhealthy. So do you feel that the game is cleaner now than it was when we were sort of covering it? I absolutely do. I, I mean, I can't imagine. I'm not saying that it's 100 percent and no one will tell you that's 100 percent, but it's way harder to to get past the drug test now. It's so stringent. It's it's some of the toughest drug testing. And, you know, there will always be people that are trying to stay ahead of that. But you also see tests that are failed. I mean, you see guys that are getting uh, suspended and uh, for you know lengthy suspensions. And you also saw where they had, you know, X amount of days that you're going to be suspended. And the reason that those punishments became tougher is because the players called for that. You know, the players wanted you to be out more games. The players did not want to do this. There were players that felt like they had to, but they don't actually want to. So yes, I do think it's much better, but I don't think it'll ever be hundred percent. You covered journalism history in 2005 by covering the least memorable world series in the history of major league baseball. Hey, yeah. now. <laughs> the Astros is getting swept by the White Sox in a world series that three people remember. There was a run differential of six runs over the four games. All right. Well, <laughs> I'm just saying, it, not the most memorable. I feel like no. nobody even remembers the White Sox won the World Series, let alone the Astros lost that World Series. When you're covering a World Series, your team is in it. 
you know, you're covering them for MLB.com, but it's a team you worked for and you've been around for a long time. Do you care who wins? I did not care who won the World Series. I very much cared about them winning the pennant. And I don't think that I need to apologize for that. First of all, it was the first one. And I was in the clubhouse covering the celebration. It was in St. Louis where all these terrible things had happened to them in the postseason in the past. I looked up at the trophy presentation in the clubhouse and I saw people that hired me. Um, I saw the vice president of marketing, you know, my my old boss, Rob Matwick. I saw, you know, these these were people that like brought me into this world and I was happy for them. I was happy for Phil Gardner. I felt like that was such an important moment, especially given what had happened in uh, the NLCS when Albert Pujols hit the home run and I saw complete panic. You know, there was a player because one of us said to him, like, just casually in the in the dugout, like, uh, you guys will be fine. Right. He's like, I don't know. (laughs) I'm not so sure. So all of these things that happened and it was like, I really I really was happy. Jeff Bagwell and Craig Biggio, like winning a pennant before their careers were over. Like it, it made me happy. But by the time the World Series got there, I was so exhausted. And Jeff Blum and I have a, a, a running joke that has gone off all these years. He was playing for the White Sox. He hit the uh, go ahead home run in like the 13th inning of game three. And I was so happy <laughs> because I was like, they're not Astros are not winning this World Series. And I, I need I can't go back to Chicago. I was so exhausted. Like I cannot keep doing this. So just let's just get this over with. It's clear the White Sox are winning the World Series. They were up two nothing, then they were up three nothing. And I I honestly was completely fine with them like not winning the World Series. I think just winning the pennant, it's so hard to win a, a pennant. And to be there for the first time that a team wins a pennant, it was cool. It was just really cool. So wait, so when you were when you were covering the Astros on a day to day, how many games a year were you going to? Um, I covered about 120. Serious <laughs> yeah. question. Yeah. Who the fuck wants to watch 120 games in a season? <laughs> well, the funny thing is that people would ask me if I was a baseball fan. And I was like, I watch because if you if you roll in to one spring training, regular season and postseason, it was close to 200 games. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You love baseball. It's uh, and it, it was my job. Much. It's right. my job. And so, um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of pressure and a lot of stress and your bylines on these stories. But you're also like, you know right inside everything like you know the nuts and bolts like you are an insider there's great responsibility but it kind of gives you a rush too uh, but no 120 games was yeah you know, it's a little excessive for sure and with the, the way that we were traveling back then i mean you know traveling's got a lot better with being able to book online and it's just like everything's a little bit easier but it was tough i mean it and you know, getting up at six o'clock in the morning to get back to the ballpark after a road trip. I mean, there were a lot of things that were exhausting. You know, I I tell people, I'm like, I was just exhausted for 15 years. I mean, which is okay. I mean, it was worth it, but no, it's, it's a lot of baseball games, but if you don't want to do that, then you can go and do something else for a career and not cover baseball. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman and I'm here with my mother-in-law, Laura. And uh, I have something kind of awkward to tell you. Is this about that Muppet fetish? Um, no. Is my daughter finally leaving you? Praise God? No. So what is it? So, my name isn't Jeff Schwartz. I'm not a neurosurgeon, I don't drive a Beamer, and I don't have a Beth Page membership. My dad wasn't an ambassador to Iceland, and my brother isn't a Nobel Prize winner. What? Are you kidding me? I'm just a lonely sports writer whose podcast is sponsored by Royal Retros, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. 
but I love your daughter and I'd do anything to make her happy. I mean that, anything, anything in the world. Did you say Royal Retros? Yeah. Can you get me a Phoenix Roadrunners jersey? I really want a blue one. Uh, sure. You've always been like a son to me, Jeff. Well, like, okay, so you covered the 2007 Astros. 2007 Astros, 73 and 89. They were not a good team. And that was the Phil Garner replaced by Cecil Cooper Astros. Oh, that Um, was a bad decision. Yeah, yeah. that was a really bad decision. And that was a bad team, like a legit bad team. Your outfield, your starting outfield was Carlos Lee, Hunter Pence, and Luke Scott. So you're Allison, (laughs) and you're covering this team. You're covering 120 regular season games of the 2007 shit-stained Astros. Like, and it's September and you're going to whatever Chicago for a three game series against a crappy Cubs. How do you get up for watching another baseball game and then knowing, oh, the next day I'm watching another baseball game and then, oh, I'm watching another baseball game. Well, first of all, if I'm going, if I'm in Chicago, then I'm ecstatic to be at Wrigley field. I mean, truth be told that is like one of my happy places. Um, Yeah. No, the road trips were actually, you know, a little bit of a salvation. Um, You get to a point in the season where, you know, it's over. So when you're like definitely going to be out of contention and 07 was really because in 06, they missed the postseason, but just by like a a day and a half. (laughs) Um, So it's still like a pretty interesting team. In 07, uh, you know, once you get to June, you're like, okay, it's over. And then you're just going to enjoy yourself. And you're going to know that on September 30th or whatever the last game of the season was, you're all, you're done. There's nothing wrong with that. Nobody is crying on the last day of the regular season when your team has been out of contention. So you're still enjoying your job. I mean, the friendships that I made like with my fellow writers and the camaraderie, um, you know, you're, you're still doing a job that you very much enjoy. And the fact that there's no pressure and you're not going to exhaust yourself by working deep into October. It's fine. It's totally fine. Um, the Phil Garner firing was actually awful. It was just awful because he made our jobs so much fun, so good. He was so great to work with. And that's what writers care about. It's like, how 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 good is the manager going to be um, in terms of us? <laughs> we're, we're very selfish people. And uh, it, it was not good after Garner left. So that was the, that was the toughest part of that season. As a B writer, are you allowed, who's supposed to be sort of unbiased and whatever, are you allowed to, Phil Garner gets fired. Is it totally fine to be like, I'm so sorry, or this really sucks or blah, blah, blah to him? You know, can you have those emotional exchanges with players and managers? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that as a they have provided you with accessibility with their time for every single day, twice a day plus all through spring training and they're very real people and it's just like any other kind of colleague. So yeah, you can be like, I mean, I did, I called him and left him a message. It's actually kind of funny, left him a message. I'm so sorry. Um, and you know, call me when you can or whatever. And then he called and left a message for me basically going, you have to work tomorrow and I don't, ha ha. That was his message to me. Um, you know, he got it. I mean, he understood. He had been a manager for so many years with the Tigers and the Brewers. And mm-hmm. I mean, he saw this coming. But yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of times, I mean, if you if a manager gets fired and you're like, eh, I mean, if you don't like him, then it's kind of a good day. But if it's somebody who's like a really special person and, and just a good, decent person, then sure, you can do that and still go on and like do your job the next day, which is what we all did. What makes a manager shitty for the media? Uh, having no information, um, being unhappy to see you when you walk into their office for their daily meeting, uh, being combative for no reason, um, to not understanding what the role of a reporter is, which is basically to be bringing the fans information about a team they care about very much. That was always my thing. It's like, I'm here 
providing a service and you're here and you have a particular part of your job you need to do, and then I'll get out of your way. So basically just being, just making it a difficult process. You know, we do this every single day. And if you're going to put that kind of effort into making sure this is the most unpleasant experience you can possibly put together, then there's going to be some combustible times during the season. And it's not necessary. Again, I look at it as like, we are covering baseball for a living. (laughs) If I can tell a quick story, when Larry Durker had his aneurysm in 1999, and he had a grand mal seizure and he was out for a month, two months, whatever. And when he was coming back, so he had brain surgery, right? And he, they have a press conference for him uh, and and it's at the hospital and it's Larry Durker and it's Jerry Hunsicker, the GM and the brain surgeon. And I turned to my boss and I said, no one's going to remember the name of the most important person up there. Like he cut Larry Durker's head open and he undid all these things and he sewed him back up and he saved his life and nobody cares about this guy. So my point is, and Larry went on to to write a book called um, It Ain't Brain Surgery. It's baseball. (laughs) Like we're going every day and we're covering a baseball game. And if your team is bad, then you're going to have a a, a lot of losses and then the season's going to be over and you're going to go golfing and like everything's going to be okay. Um, That was my philosophy. And so if a manager was particularly um, difficult, I'm like, dude, this is so unnecessary. You know, we're nice people. We're the Houston media contingent. Like, (laughs) it's, you know, it's not New York and Boston. We're okay. Well, you were with the Astros when um, you weren't there for his first time, but Ken Caminiti came back in 1999, 2000. And he obviously struggled a lot with demons. It's been well documented, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what you remember. Like when he came back, was he sort of a battered soul? Could you tell he was... No, you know, it's funny because I didn't meet him the first time he was with the Astros. I was a year. I think he got traded a year before I got there. Mm. So my first dealings with him, he was such a sweet guy. I mean, it's interesting just to to look at him as, you know, what we all know publicly, which was that he was a complete mess. I remember having a conversation with him. I was still with the Astros and media relations when he played for them. And I, I was on the team charter and we had this conversation, this lovely conversation. Um where he had all this knowledge about whatever we were talking about. And he was asking me questions about something in my background. I mean, it was like this, you know, players tend to, when you remember a player that's like, where are you from? Where'd you go to school? What, tell me about your family. Like, it's not that common. (laughs) And so when you have these conversations and they're actually like paying attention, it sticks with you. And I just remember him really relating to me on whatever, ever topic we were talking about. And I was like, God, that is a nice guy. He has a lot of knowledge about a lot of things that he didn't get credit for. And it made me so sad because he had these three daughters that were incredibly sweet and they were so young. And then he, you know, and when he died, they were like very, very young. They were all born in like the early to mid nineties. And um, it's, it's tragic what happened to him. But I think that part of it was that he was such a, a nice person and he wanted to make everybody happy. And he, a lot of people took advantage of him. I'm going to ask you about a random, random moment that I happen to be there for, and I'm hoping you remember this, okay? Okay. It's June 25th, 2008. I'm there, I'm literally in the clubhouse when this happened. Ed Wade is the general manager of the Houston Astros. <laughs> okay, I think I know where you're going with this. And Sean Chacon grabs him around the You neck. were there? I was there, I had on audio the entire exchange as it oh, happened. Oh my goodness. Basically for people who wouldn't know this, and that's 99% of humanity, the Astros had a pitcher, a journeyman pitcher named Sean Chacon, who had a, in the clubhouse, conflict with ed wade the general manager at the time grabbed him around the neck and like kind of pounded him a little bit and then he got cut and let go were you there for this 
I was not, I was not in the clubhouse. The clubhouse was closed when it actually happened. I was there working. I was covering the game, but um, I don't remember how we had gotten word that it happened, but I, I think Ed had gone in to talk to him. It was something, a touchy subject. Sean grabbed him and like threw him against the wall, like in the, in the lunchroom and really hurt him. I mean, Ed had had to have major physical therapy for like a couple of years after that, to say the least, he got released. Yeah. <laughs> like, is that the weirdest? Yeah. Is that the weirdest thing you had happen involving a player during your time with the Astros? Yeah. I mean, honestly, if you had just like said, what's the weirdest thing that happened to you? Um, I would have had to think about it and I probably would have been stumped because I kind of forgot about this. But yeah, I mean, for sure. Because then Ed had a press conference and he wrote a statement explaining exactly what happened, like things that probably he could have glossed over, you know, but he was just like, and he grabbed me by the neck and he threw me against the wall. And it was, um, yeah, it was, it was very bizarre. And then I guess the, uh, I guess there was, there were some legal things that happened. And then Ed came to us, like, I don't know, a year and a half later and was like, everything's been settled. And we're like, oh, we kind of forgot this happened. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's funny to, we can look back at and laugh now, but that's terrifying. I mean, that was small, small. <laughs> yeah. Sean Chacon was a large man and, um, and I liked him too. I liked Sean Chacon. I didn't, you know, I never de- detected any kind of any, any of this. That's the whole thing is like the thing that I've learned when, when your team wins every day or almost every day, like most things, no matter what happens, you get tired of each other. These things happen. it gets, it's, everything's fine. When you lose four times a week, it, it, the smallest little things, you know, by July, August, just yeah. make you want to throw someone against the wall, I guess. Let me ask you a final question. You entered the, the profession, you know, a long time ago, same as, I'm, same as I did, a long time ago. And unlike me, you are a woman. And when you entered the profession, it was, I still would say back then, not a very diverse field as far as racist, as, as far as gender. It was a pretty white male media landscape. Yeah. Do you feel like it has improved to where it needs to be improved? Do you feel like it's improved at all? Do you feel like walking into a clubhouse in 2023 for a woman is probably vastly different than doing so in 1997? For sure. I mean, absolutely. I don't know how many women writers were back then. I know that I was traveling with the Astros with media relations and there were like two other women that were traveling with teams. Um but yeah, I mean, it's so different now. In fact, I was up in Arlington in I think 2018 or 19 covering the A's and uh, and we walked into Bob Melvin's office and noticed that like they were all women reporters. It was uh, it was pretty cool. Bob thought it was cool too. So kudos to Bob. But um, it's so different now. Yeah, I, I it's still I mean, we have at MLB, like we have this whole um, like diversity initiative. I mean, we we have a diversity fellowship that we're starting uh, for reporters and, you know, we're working to get uh, to add diversity to the landscape. It's still very white male dominated. I mean, it just is, but you will see a lots of everything when you walk into a clubhouse now. And I think it's really cool because play, I always say like players were the least resistant to like women reporters. I mean, they, they liked having us around. I mean, they found, I found that like the conversations I was able to have with some players, my male counterparts couldn't have with them. You know, they, they found an allyship in some of us that, that others didn't. Um, but you know, we're, we're never going to feel satisfied, um, that, that it's really, truly equal, but it's completely different. I mean, the, a female PR director back when I started was unheard of. I would have never been, been, been considered to be a PR director in my first three years. Um, now you see women media relations reps everywhere. It's vice presidents, you know, it's come a long, long way. 
Do you get the same joy from editing as you did from writing? Um, I do because I, um, so many of the people that I manage and that I edit are young, you know, in their twenties, early thirties that are starting out. I'm able to connect them on stories with like the contacts that I have and the people that I've met along the way. And then they'll write like a really cool story. Um, and I just feel like this is so awesome, you know, that other people are able to experience some of the things that I was able to experience as a younger person. So seeing like a really well-written, uh, well-reported story by somebody who's hugely talented, enthusiastic and, and kind of helping see that to the end has been just incredibly rewarding. I I, yeah. I really do love it. And it's less pressure on me because my name is, you know, my byline being out there all those years, it's a little stressful. So it's kind of nice to be a little bit more behind the scenes now. Right. Well, I just want to say two final things to you. Number one, you asked me how I knew so much about random stuff. <laughs> it would be because in on June, July 16th, 1997, the Dayton Daily News, Dean Shipley published a story, Northmont grad working for Houston Astros. So there you go. 1997? Wow. Yep. Wow. I like how it says she, wait, while it worked during the off season, she was, and it's in quotes, surfing the net and came upon the Houston Astros homepage. So that's how. The- Let me tell you something, Jeff. In 1996, yeah. 10 teams had websites. That's and great. the Houston and I went through and I went WWW and every single team and the Astros won. It was one page and in the middle was a red dot and it said, click here for job openings. And I clicked on it for a job that I wasn't qualified for. And then I got the job that I got. So you laugh. Crazy. 10 teams had websites in 1996. <laughs> and the second thing I want to say is I remember vividly when I would cover the Astros, I could always find you because you had the best freaking hair of anybody on the beat. And I just want to say, as we sit here today, people won't see this, but we're doing FaceTime. I have almost no hair. And you, meanwhile, still have freaking great hair. And it's bullshit. And it pisses me off. And I just want it's you to- all, It's all the ponytail. And I was able to roll out of bed since I was glad this wasn't going to be a video thing, which is why I was asking. I was like, is this audio only? But yeah, uh, but yeah the um, yeah, the, the, I definitely stand out a little bit in a press box because I just have hair. You have hair? <laughs> just yeah, having hair point. makes yeah, me stand exactly, out in a press box. Exactly, exactly. Well, listen, seriously, I appreciate you doing this. Um, Thank you, Jeff. I've admired you for a long time. You've always been incredibly kind and gracious. And even when I was dumping on the Astros, probably in ways that maybe were a little harsh, I, you've always been nice to me. <laughs> I've always considered you to be a friend and I'm a great hey. admirer. Hey, you, I told you the Roger Clemens book, when, when COVID started and the world shut down, I pulled out your Roger Clemens book and reread it. That was one of the first like of five books that I reread. It was fascinating to look back on it all those years later. You are a company of one, I assure you, but I appreciate that very much. <laughs> it was a good book. Thank you. I want to thank today's guest, Allison Footer, for joining me on Two Riders Sling and Yang. You can follow Allison on Twitter at Allison Footer, that's Allison with a Y, and see her handiwork at MLB.com. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Sling and Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd really be grateful. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. Remember, keep riding. <laughs>